Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcast every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. Join us for a dinner party with six amazing women across history, plus our wonderful dinner party hosts, Joe Bell, Tanya Hirschman and Elsa Holland, authors of On This Day She, putting women back into history one day at a time. Find out which historical figure was fond of geese at a dinner party, as we add six important figures back into the story of the past that unfairly confines women to the margins. Hello, I'm Ailsa Holland, one third of the team behind On This Day She, which has been a Twitter account since January 2018 and a book since February of this year. We're thrilled to be at Birmingham Literature Festival. So I'm going to tell you how On This Day She started. I've told this story so many times, it's taken on the atmosphere of myth to me now. My family was given an On This Day in History calendar for Christmas 2016, and during 2017, I got more and more cross with it because it didn't contain any women, well, hardly any women. Um, And I told my friends, Jo Bell and Tanya Hirschman about this, and they shared my rage and said, you know, this is terrible, you know, why are we still not talking about women in history and there's, we should do something. So we did, we did something and we started a Twitter account, started posting about a woman from history every day, um, from all different time periods, from all across the world, Some of them are really good and inspiring women. Some of them are really awful women. And some of them are a little bit of both. And then we got a book deal, which was incredibly exciting. And so we're able to share some of these stories with more people. The book came out, as I say, in February with John Blake. Doing research for the Twitter account and for the book, we've become aware of what women across centuries and continents have in common with one another, and also how much they differ. So when we were thinking about live book events back in the day when we did those things, including thinking about being at last year's Birmingham Literature Festival, we planned to stage a dinner party with each of us playing three or four roles to see what a selection of these women might talk about if they were put in the same room. This idea was inspired at least partly by our love for Judy Chicago's ceramic artwork, The Dinner Party. It's at Brooklyn Museum. If you don't know it, look it up. It's amazing. And it would have involved lots of great hats. We still hope it might happen one day. But meanwhile, we are going to try and create a taster of it in audio form here with three sets of neighbours at the dinner table of history. We're so sad you can't see the headgear. So, picture the scene. An oak-panelled room and a long, long table. Or many tables stood in a circle, laid with white damask cloths and set with crystal and silverware and tall candelabras. Or maybe it's a community hall with formica tables and mugs that don't match. What would a dinner party of the women of history look like Who would fund it? I'll hand over to Tanya Hirschman now to introduce the first pair of women who found themselves next to one another. 
Thank you, Ailsa. It's lovely to be here. And it's really exciting that for the first time we get to explore this idea of a dinner party. And so when I was thinking about who I might want to invite to our dinner party, so all three of us have different interests and different specialities. And our book contains 366 women or groups of women, one for every day of the year. And we slipped in um, February the 29th because we just wanted to get an extra woman, woman in. And so many of the women, we each, we each researched and wrote a third of the book. And my background is in science, so I'm kind of the science geek of the three of us. So immediately the first woman that came to mind that I would like to hang out at a dinner party is someone that you might think was uh, quite unexpected, because frankly, scientists get a bad rap in the media, in films, in TV. Um, and we spent quite a lot of time over the last year watching scientists at press conferences, and you wouldn't necessarily think you might want to hang out with them at party, but... Let me tell you about Johanna Westerdick. And I want to apologise, as I always do, for to the Dutch speakers, in case I'm getting her name very wrong. But I wanted to tell you about her. On the 10th of February 1917, Johanna Westerdick became the Netherlands' first female professor. And her field was plant pathology and mycology. She studied fungi, or fungi which there's a slight uh, party thing there with fungi. Do you see what? I, all right, well, we'll just move on from that at this point. So apart from her science, I mean, what she did in terms of her science uh, was astonishing. Under her supervision, the International Association of Botanists Fungi Collection expanded to over 10,000 strains of 6,000 different species. And the fungus that caused elm disease was discovered under her leadership. Hence, it's called Dutch elm disease. But why do I want her at our dinner party? Well. She wasn't just known for her scientific breakthrough. She was known as being rather somewhat of a party animal. She had a motto, a dull and monotonous life even kills a fungus. And she even had a slogan carved over her lab door, which read, for fine minds, the art is to mix work and parties. So I think she would have replied to our dinner party invitation instantly. And I suspect the headgear that she would have brought would have been fantastic. Um, before I move on to the second dinner party guest, I just wanted to say as well that um, she also mentored a lot of women scientists. In fact, half of the 56 PhD candidates she supervised were female. And that's something that comes across a lot in our book, is that when women achieved something, like being the first professor in the whole country, first female professor, they turned around and they offered a hand to the women coming after them. And also, she always insisted on three geese wearing bows that should be present at every doctoral ceremony. So I suspect she might have brought the geese to the dinner party as guests. I just wanted to insist. Now, my second dinner party guest, we're going in a very different direction. I thought, who might come up with lively and interesting conversation? And so uh, her name is Elizabeth Nihel. And she was an English midwife in the 18th century. And she's one of three midwives, actually, that we have in the book. Um, she is in the book on the 10th of April. And we also have, later on in the book, two French midwives. And they were among the earliest midwives to actually write about the practice of midwifery. And it was interesting because in England, Elizabeth Nihel and what she went through was mirrored also in, for the midwives of France. So women have been midwives for a very, very long time. And at a certain point in the mid-18th century, 
men turned up and decided they wanted to do what the midwives had been doing. And Elizabeth Nahel was not happy about this at all. Um, she had attended over 900 births and in 1760 she published a treatise on the art of midwifery setting forth various abuses therein, especially as the practice with instruments. She was very angry with the male doctors. She was very angry because she saw that they tried to interfere in with what nature was doing fine on its own and that they should just leave nature alone. But she wasn't polite about this in any way. She mocked the male midwives, calling them self-constituted men midwives made out of broken barbers, tailors, or even pork butchers. You can imagine that she didn't make a great deal of uh, friends among the male midwives. She even, when she was responding to critics, she called uh, one of them a buffoon in her 7072 book, The Danger and Immodesty of the Present Two General Customs of Unnecessarily Employing Men Midwives. She wasn't so good at the snappy short title, but I get the sense that she would have been a fascinating dinner party conversationalist. She would have had a lot to say and I would have loved to hear from her. Her life, as many of the women in our book, unfortunately did not end um, happily. Her husband was a surgeon and he abandoned her, perhaps because um, of her attitude to male doctors, we don't know. And she spent the final year of her life in poverty and she died in a workhouse. So I feel like the least we can do is invite her to our dinner party. And I wanted to mention before I hand over to Ailsa that, uh, as she mentioned earlier, um, not all the women in our book and not all the women on our Twitter account are, are ones you would necessarily want to hang out with at a dinner party because our mission is not to um, inspire, our mission is not necessarily, is not to celebrate. By default, a lot of the women that we feature are inspiring and are awesome, but our mission at On This Day She is to try and do our bit to rebalance human history and to fill in the gaps. And that includes the women who were flawed, who were perhaps corrupt politicians, and who were sometimes downright appalling. Because equality means you have the equal right to behave really, really badly. So there are women that we wouldn't necessarily want to share um, our dinner with. Um, I am now going to hand over as I straighten my cutlery and I perhaps pour myself a glass of water. I'm going to hand over to Elsa to tell you about our two next guests from one Elizabeth to another. So Elizabeth the first is sitting at our dinner party. She never acquired the services of a midwife. She's been talked about for hundreds of years in terms of her sexual history or her lack of it. The Virgin Queen, whoever spoke of a king in such a way. Elizabeth knows why she's at the table of history. She acceded to the throne of England on the 17th of November, 1558 and went on to rule for 44 years. This is testament to her extraordinary ability to prevail in a hostile environment. She survived political intrigue, imprisonment and threatened execution, as well as smallpox. Elizabeth was an intelligent and passionate scholar. She spoke and read at least seven languages, including Latin, Greek, Hebrew and Italian. And she translated works by Boethius, Horace, Plutarch and Tacitus. As queen, she was patron of the arts. 
literature in particular, flowered in her reign. Theatre companies were invited to perform for her, which increased drama's standing, and six theatres were built in London while she was queen. Despite her obvious intellect, Elizabeth had to battle with the contemporary belief that the imbecility of women made them unfit to rule. Nevertheless, she persisted in being queen. Her reign was a period of stability and domestic peace in England, in contrast to the periods either side of it, which saw religious and political battles, and this enabled the building of economic prosperity. Of all European countries at the time, only Spain could rival England's wealth. Elizabeth's leadership was a key factor in England's victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588. In answer to those who doubted her authority because a woman could not perform a male monarch's task of leading forces into battle, she gave a speech to the troops about to defend England from the Spanish invasion. I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Despite having proved herself in all ways, she still had to speak of herself as in some way male to assume authority. Elizabeth finds herself sitting next to a woman with a dark skin and simple clothes. No crown, no pearls, no lace, no jewels. She wonders what this woman has done to earn herself a seat at the table of history, and rather snootily, she asks her her story. And Recy Taylor, uncowed by the woman with the crown, massive ruff and strange makeup, replies saying that in September 1944, she, a 24-year-old African-American, was walking back from church in Abbeville, Alabama, when she was forced into a car by seven white men armed with knives and shotguns. They drove her to a wooded area and raped her, threatening to cut her throat if she screamed. She tells Elizabeth that she went with her father to report the rape to the county sheriff. In the following days, one of the men confessed and named the six others involved, but none of them was arrested. When the story reached the Montgomery office of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, they sent a sexual violence investigator to Abbeville. This investigator was Rosa Parks, who would, although of course Recy Taylor didn't know it at the time, later become famous for her part in the Montgomery bus boycott. The sheriff didn't want this troublemaker around and Parks was told to leave town on several occasions and was once forcibly removed. Back in Montgomery, Parks launched the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Recy Taylor and got the story into the newspapers. In response to public outrage, the case was heard twice, but on each occasion the jury refused to formally charge the rapists of their crime. 65 years later, historian Danielle L. Maguire brought Taylor's case back into the news with her book At the Dark End of the Street. And on the 21st of April 2011, the Alabama legislature issued an official apology to Recy Taylor for the state's morally abhorrent and repugnant failure to prosecute the men who had attacked and abused her. By that time, she was 91 years old. So I earned my place, she says, 
by being a woman who refused to accept that men can use our bodies as they want, who refused to accept what the state considered justice. It took a long time, but finally the state of Alabama had to admit they'd been wrong. And Elizabeth looks at this woman with their very simple hat. She's never told anybody that she also had the experience of a man using her body for his own gratification. But now she tells Reese that Thomas Seymour, her stepmother's husband, used to come into her room in the evenings when she was a child. She can still feel his hands on her. She can't imagine how Reese Taylor carried on after what happened to her. What she doesn't say is that she is envious of the support Taylor had from her family. To have a father you could tell such a thing to, who would come with you to ask for justice. Taylor expresses her sympathy. How strange that she should be feeling sorry for a queen. But she does feel sorry for her. What she doesn't say is that she's pretty sure Elizabeth's life was a lot easier than hers. I'm handing over now to Jo Bell to tell you about the next pair of women who found themselves next to one another. Okay, so I'm Jo Bell and I'm going to introduce another two women to our dinner party, our imaginary multi-period dinner party. Um, And I think we've already got some interesting conversations happening. We've got Joanna Westerdyke sitting next to uh, the 18th century midwife, Elizabeth Nihel, talking about science and perceptions of science, perhaps, and medicine. Uh, We've got Elizabeth I, who has probably a lot to say about choosing not to indulge in childbirth at all. Uh, And Reese Taylor, who already has things you wouldn't expect in common with Elizabeth I in terms of talking about sexual assault and the experience of women's bodies in that sense. Um, And sitting next to Reese Taylor, I'm going to introduce uh, my first guest, who is another woman of colour who stood up against racism a generation later. And this one is wearing... Uh, a different hat. She's wearing the hat of a Bobby on the beat in the UK because Sislin Faye Allen was not the victim of a crime, but the first black policewoman in the UK. Um, and in fact, we found whilst doing a bit of extra research for today that Faye Allen died only last week at the time of recording, aged 83. Um, and in some ways, Faye Allen's life was typical of the black British experience Uh, in the 1950s and 60s. She was part of the Windrush generation. She came to Britain from Jamaica and qualified as a nurse. And in 1968, she was working at the Queen's Hospital Croydon with geriatric patients when she saw a newspaper ad recruiting for the Met, the Metropolitan Police, and she applied. And she wrote at the bottom of her application that she was a black woman, so that if she made it to interview, the Met wouldn't be able to say, "Well, well, we didn't know. Um, she got the job. She got the job. And on the 29th of April, 1968, Faye Allen began her beat, working out of Croydon Police Station. It was only a year since Norwell Roberts had become the country's first black policeman since the 19th century, when there was another one. But this was a particularly racist time in Britain. Faye Allen was working right at the front line in a really incendiary climate because nine days before she began work, Enoch Powell, the MP, had given his notorious speech, uh, the Rivers of Blood speech, it's called, opposing a new race relations act 
and demanding restrictions on immigration. Um, I think sitting next to Reese Taylor, she would also have experiences to share of daily racism and working against white privilege in one's daily life. But almost all of the women at our dinner table have found that publicity is a factor in, in their success or difficulty. In Faye Allen's case, the Met at the time arranged a publicity shoot. And if you look her up, Sislin Faye Allen, you will see her attending a mocked up traffic accident. She's taking a hands-on role. She's helping a white motorcyclist who's apparently been knocked down. And behind her, in full view, is a line of police officers, both male and female, in uniform. And they're giving a clear signal that the Metropolitan Police Force is behind her, literally and figuratively. Faye Allen always downplayed the racism that she encountered. She even said that she got more criticism from the black community of London than from the white public, because they were suspicious of a police force which often worked against them, then as now. She spent a year on the beat in Croydon and then uh, she went to Scotland Yard and worked in the Missing Persons Bureau. But she was only with the Met for four years and then she went back to Jamaica in 1972 and joined the police there. She got a welcoming letter from the Prime Minister, Michael Manley. And we so often see with the women in our book and the women at this table that role models and family support are really important either by their presence or their absence. Faye Allen was brought up in Jamaica by her aunt, who was a judge. Uh, and at, at that time in the UK, you would not have found a person of colour in such a uh, responsible public position. So she had that role model. She knew that she was able to do that kind of work. So the first woman, the first person of colour in any role is immensely conspicuous. Uh, Elizabeth I was immensely conspicuous in a very different environment and with layer upon layer of privilege in exercising power. But she was still conspicuous and vulnerable as a woman in a man's world, quote unquote. So she might want to ask Elizabeth I across the dinner table how she coped with the haters, as you might call them, who worked to undermine her. And that supportive family is another thing she had in common with Reese Taylor. Also, like Elizabeth Nihel, Alan was an immigrant. Ever so many of the women in our book have been displaced by global events or they've chosen to live very far away from their first home. In some cases, they're making the best of difficult circumstances. But in many cases, they're choosing to move because they want the adventure and they want a career opportunity. Um, Faye Allen said, I didn't set out to make history, I just wanted a change of direction. But last year, uh, she was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Black Police Association. So hers was a story of success and groundbreaking. Sitting next to Faye Allen is my second invited guest, and her hat is, is not impressive, to be honest. Her hat you can see in a picture of her, which I'll describe later on, she's wearing a battered billycock, a woolen hat, which is fit for her life on horseback because this is not uh, a lawmaker, but a lawbreaker, a really chaotic figure. She had no structure to support her. She had no one to fight her corner. And we know her best 
not as Martha Jane Cannery, but as Calamity Jane. She was born around 1856, and a friend of hers later said the way she got that name was she was always in trouble. So if you've seen the Doris Day movie, Calamity Jane, it might surprise you to learn about the real Calamity Jane. She wasn't a joyful, clear complexion tomboy. She was a woman whose life included hard drinking, casual sex work, and a peculiar global career. She was a chancer in a very hard environment, and I think she would appreciate a good meal more than anyone else at the table. Faye Allen's stable family and good role models were not there for Calamity Jane. Jane came to Montana during the gold rush of the 1860s with her parents. They died soon after, so by the time she was 12, she was an orphan. She was looking after several siblings. She lived hand-to-mouth, doing the work that was available in the volatile, the changeable settlements of the Midwest, the Wild West. The Civil War had only just finished. Railways were being built, towns founded, populations shifting in vast numbers. Everyone is either an immigrant or a Native American being persecuted by the immigrants. Much of the country is still unmapped. And this is an immensely masculine society. Thousands of labourers, pioneer farmers, miners and railway workers in every town. It's an extremely dangerous place for a young woman to be growing up. And I think Calamity Jane could have a conversation with either Recy Taylor or Elizabeth I about how ownership of one's body in such a precarious environment is a huge issue. Um, Jane worked as a dance hall girl, as a prostitute, as a waitress, as a bartender, as a cook, anything that didn't involve a great deal of skill but did involve a certain amount of brass neck. And her biographer says she arrested no outlaws, she robbed no banks, she killed no Indians, but she realised that she could invent a persona which would give her some status. She has that in common with Elizabeth I, who invented herself as a virgin queen. So she was probably about 20 on the 15th of July, 1876, when the Black Hills Pioneer ran its headline, Calamity Jane Has Arrived. She was part of Wild Bill Hickok's wagon train, rolling into the town of Deadwood, which actually existed, and claiming to be a gunwoman, a scout, a cowboy. But nearly all of that comes from a CV she invented herself in a pamphlet for sale at Wild West shows. She had none of Elizabeth I's status or power, but she made herself the centre of a myth. And she, she claimed some status from that. So I think she might be quite vocal in contesting the idea that we all accept and understand now of white privilege, because she might say, well, I saw precious little of that. Um, but she might also talk to Joanna Westerdyke, who said, a dull and monotonous life kills even a fungus, because this was not a dull and monotonous life. She died at the age of around 50, probably from drinking, uh, and she was buried next to Wild Bill Hickok, whom she almost certainly did not marry, as she claimed, uh, because he was married to somebody else. But she was a, a myth maker of her own myth. And what I like about Calamity Jane at this table is that she represents the people who have no voice at all in history, usually. 
The working class and the uneducated often have no voice, but Calamity Jane made a little space for herself. Uh, and although her life was awkward and uncomfortable, uh, made the best of that potential, I think. So we've got our dinner table of guests, and I just want to finish really by talking about how what we've learned about history and how we can recalibrate and rebalance it. That's our shtick. That's what we're here to do, to, to make a small gesture to rebalancing history. It's hard to overstate, though, how how different a rebalanced, a properly rebalanced history would look. There are two problems we found. One is getting women into the existing record, but the other is changing the nature of the record itself. We've established that, of course, and many historians before us have established that there were women who fought in battles or who painted or who led armies or who made immense scientific discoveries. But getting more women into that existing record is only half the battle. We need to tilt the axis of history itself to acknowledge that for much of history, yes, women's activity has mostly been inside or around the home and that much of their activity outside the home fell within a sphere of a culture of social care. So a proper equal history doesn't include just changes of national boundary or even the general social trends it should also be naming the women who organised grassroots protests or small-scale social reformers like Kitty Wilkinson, who organised bathhouses in Victoria and Liverpool. It should work hard to find the voices of working-class women and immigrants, queer histories. It will look much more closely at the records of businesses, for instance, to see who's actually running them. So... I want to leave you with an idea of what you might do yourself if you're listening to this and wanting to, to help us in that uh, battle to rebalance history a bit. If you're a teacher or a student, you can interrogate your sources rigorously. Be suspicious of any narrative that calls a woman a muse or the wife of an artist when in fact she was very often an artist and peer herself. Be aware that many articles you find, even on Wikipedia or encyclopedias, casually diminish the achievements of women without meaning to. Men are often said to have done something. Women are often said uh, to have possibly done something. Legend has it that she did something. She is believed to have done something. So bring a critical eye to that. And be aware also that the algorithms don't work in our favour. So if you search Google, as I did the other day, for stained glass artists, you get a list of male artists by default. If you put female glass, stained glass artists in the search bar, you'll see plenty of women who are already in the record, but not favoured by that algorithm. If you've got some expertise, sign up to be a Wikipedia editor. It's free, it's easy, you can help to uh, get the numbers back up. Notice how often uh, your local newspaper or your council reports feature a woman and make a noise about it. Get in touch with your local council and nominate local women who might be uh, included in street names. And support, dare I say it, Twitter accounts like ours, at On This Day She. Educate yourself. We're doing it all the time and learning astonishing new things. Most of all, 
keep asking questions and keep listening to unexpected answers. It's been wonderful to talk to you about our dinner party and our guests. Uh, and I'm going to hand you back now to Tanya Hirschman. Thank you, Joe, And thank you, Ailsa. Can you hear it? The level of conversation round our dinner party table is rising. You can almost not even hear the clinking of the cutlery anymore because everyone's talking. Thank you so much to Birmingham Literature Festival and Chantal and all the team for inviting us to do our virtual dinner party for the first time. We only have six guests at this dinner party, plus the three of us. And to be honest, we would like to tell you about pretty much every single woman in our book and pretty much every woman we featured on the Twitter account. And we've been running it for over three years now. So that's a lot of women. Um, so we really encourage you to please go and check out what we're up to on Twitter and you get a different woman featured every day from across the world, from across all different fields and time periods. And of course, we can't end without saying that we would quite like you to buy our book, which is also called On This Day She, and is available from all good bookshops and uh, as hardback, ebook, or audiobook. And we'd like to take this chance as well to thank so much our publishers at Bonnier and John Blake, and also our wonderful agent, Kate. And now I think dessert is being served. So we're going to leave you there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcast and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands. Thank you.